This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street. On today's pod, we're reviewing the year that was in World SBK, and we'll look back on it with myself, Steve English, our resident superbike scholar, Gordon Ritchie, and we've actually got two blow-ins to the parish, Neil Morrison and David Emmett, back on uh, a superbike pod for first time in a very long time. You boys have been talking about production-based uh, championships, but Dave, it's not a bad place to, st- to start because production bikes and you have been one of the big talking points for everyone. Yeah, I don't know why everyone's so interested. It's, I mean, it's only a motorbike. What motorbike is it, though, Dave? Ah, well, you'll find out, uh, hopefully, on Thursday. I'm waiting to hear back from my dealer who, um, uh, who said he's uh, uh, he, the bike is in the dealers and it just needs to be prepared. So um, uh, stand by for the, big, uh, for the big reveal. I shall do the whole influencer thing. Like well, a 25-minute ref- video of me just talking into the camera uh, 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 in, a, in a street somewhere saying, I'm just about to go in and get my new motorbike. Will the big reveal be as exciting and as tense as the hat reveal that we had over the weekend? Certainly not. I mean, <laughs> that's that's the big news. I was actually gutted that to send it back. Why did you have to, have to send it back, Dave? Because it was uh, it was slightly too big. I have a fifty-seven and a half centimeter head, and uh, the, the hat sizes are only um, whole centimeters. So I went with fifty-eight centimeters, and it was just a little bit loose. And I didn't want to lose the second hat to the sea, so um, uh, it's been sent back for a slightly smaller one. And I should just jam right, it on I'm, the head. I'm not going to lie; a lot of people have already turned off on, the, on this week's <laughs> pod. It, it's actually going to be quite an interesting one, Gordo. You've obviously been flat out all the way through the year. We're into December now. We've almost got enough time for you to start thinking about having a little bit of a Christmas break, maybe. Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've already half started on it in some ways, but I've just got so many other things to do when I get home. Um, and to my great joy, we've actually got a wood burner on. So every day I'm going out and bringing wood in and heating the house by like wood and stuff, which is just, that's when I know I'm home. When I can actually start getting the wood burner going every day, that's when my off season really starts. You know, I've reached that age now where there's nothing like sitting by an old wood fire and you know chilling out for a bit. You know, it happens. It's there's no point living. Nothing wrong with that, Gordo. Nothing wrong with that. And two point seven hectares of wood and not burning it. You know what I mean? Basically, <laughs> which is what I do. Uh, so the thing to get Gordo for Christmas is obviously slippers. For uh, sitting in front of a burning wood burning fire with and a pipe. Uh, no, I'm, I'm okay for slippers, and I gave up the pipe. If you know what I mean. You said slippers there, the Gordo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More <laughs> than one. I have more than one. I have several sets of slippers, mate. Honestly, I give them a hard time. I'm a big lad. I give them a hard time. Remember. <laughs> I'll be honest, Gordo. I heard something slightly different than slippers. But uh, Neil, obviously, you're on a superbike show for the first time in a long time, and. For six years, Northern Ireland has been covered in murals on almost every wall of Jonathan Ray, and it's it's been something else to see so much green paint on the Shankill Road. But uh, <laughs> you know, the the Northern Irishman he, he didn't manage to get the championship this year, but it's been a great year for superbikes. It has been a great year for superbikes, Steve. Yeah, I was sort of thinking about this coming on to the show, um, just about how how great a year it was. I mean, you'd have to say you guys would would know more about this than I would, obviously. But in my sort of uh, armchair opinion it it definitely 
seemed to me like one of the best World Superbike Championships we've ever had. Um, you know, right up there with maybe Edwards and, and Bayless back in the day. Um, Foggy, that time that he went to Sugo with two other guys uh, in contention. Um, it, it was just, it was a joy. I mean, um, yeah, it was great seeing not just the emergence of top rack, um, but also how Ray sort of defended his crown because he, he definitely put up a fight that was worthy of a champion. Um, and it was just, uh, I think from around halfway through the season, it was just incessant. You could guarantee every weekend there would be at least two big races or big moments between the pair of them where they were just knocking lumps out of each other. Yeah, I was I was going through the highlights last night just to sort of catch up again on the, on the bits, bits and pieces that I'd missed. And it was like you couldn't tell which race you were looking at because whatever, whenever time you looked, it was just sort of, you know, Ray and top rack uh, with the um, quite often Scott Redding as well, just absolutely knocking lumps out of each other. It was absolutely fantastic. I think it's been the best one for a while, but it's I think the trouble is we've had one dominant force um, and one consistent dominant force and machine, man and team for so long, it became that's what people thought World Superbike's normal was. Um, and I think there's been some great climaxes to certain seasons in the past, but if you remember back to that wonderful season where Edwards versus Bayless, that was actually a season of complete two halves. Johnny's nearly losing the championship and then winning it by miles in 2019 was a season of a third and then a two-thirds, where everything just swung over. But you look at uh, Gintoli winning at the last race of the last round of the year when it looked like it was going to be Sykes when you go through all those years before uh, most of those seasons have been pretty competitive in different ways going back and forward yeah you have had some dominant riders and uh, you look at right back to the beginning you had uh, Poland destroying everybody for two seasons so you know it, it, it's been a truly great year because you've had not just those two guys in it but you've also had Reading and We've had several other race winners as well. If it was only those two, then that would be another type of season. So what we've actually had this season, I think, is a complete season in every way. Uh, every aspect you want it to be good and entertaining and, and conversation-worthy about the, the season has actually happened this year. Rookies, everything. Um, that, that, to me, is what made it a particularly good season. Five different winners, Gordo, 13 different riders on the podium, loads of riders that had good chances of being right at the front as well. And you actually, you wrote a piece for David on motormatters.com with your little roundup of the year. And it was the three oars. It was Rasgari Oglu, Ray and Redding. And I thought one of the most interesting things was you looked at it as well from the perspective of you have three different manufacturers. That's always interesting. But you have three totally different philosophies with how they develop the bike the uh, yeah. actual design of the bikes. I think that's been what's really good is that those three bikes have been really closely matched all year. I mean, there are three very different motorcycles in there. Uh, two seem more similar on paper than each other, but one's a bit more modern than the other one and it's got a completely different engine configuration. So even the Japanese across the frame four cylinders are doing things differently. The Ducati was always its own thing um, with lots of MotoGP ideas, if not execution inside it. Um, so that's been another interesting thing and you've seen it in the past where it would be one guy's got an advantage because his bike's doing this, one guy's got an advantage because his bike's doing that. Um, I think this year it was quite clear the Yamaha was the best all-round package. The Ducati's still the fastest thing. When you get it working right, it still beats everything. Um, and the Kawasaki is still good enough to take a rider as good as Jonathan Ray to within 13 points of the championship one, which I think a lot of people have forgotten considering how it quite obviously did go towards top back at the end. but. 
Ray Kawasaki, the team, everything else is still so good. They got to within 13 points of a championship. So that was another interesting thing at the end, you know, the, the, there was still fighting the old dog right to the very end of the championship. Yeah, what I found interesting was that um, both in Superbike and MotoGP, the, the, the riders who won, have, they won it on the brakes, basically. Because top rack was so incredibly impressive. I mean, like scarily impressive on the brakes. I have my my own pet theory about that. About the fact one of the reasons he does all those stoppies is um, uh, just to practice his brake control, sort of thing. Or else that he probably does the stoppies for fun. Uh, but it gives him incredible control on the brakes. And um, you know, there was a few times where he was into the corner, already tipping it in, and the front wheel is still about six inches above the above the tarmac, which is absolutely astonishing. Um, and I think that because Jonathan Ray was always very good on the brakes as well, but he didn't have anything extra. He didn't have anything to fight the top racks, just incredible precision and, 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 and strength and strength on the brakes. And it was so in, in, in MotoGP as well. Quattararo was so strong this, this year on braking. If you watch the Austria race, uh, you know, his bike is so much slower than DK's, but he's just sails past them through into the corners just because he was capable of braking and stopping the bike so much later than everyone else. Well, I always think one of the most interesting things about that, Dave, is, and Gordo, you know this as well from seeing what's happened over the last few years, Alex Lowe's one of the few riders that's gone from a Yamaha onto the Kawasaki in recent years. And with the Yamaha, that bike was developed around being able to keep that rear wheel in contact in braking. The Kawasaki was the opposite. They were happy for the rear to come up, end of one, the run into corners. And as much as Lowe's had been used to dragging that rear on the entry to corners, it took him a long time to adapt to having to change that style a little bit and break harder and harder as you come into the corner. Top rack, he's gone from the opposite onto the Yamaha and uh, he tried to make sure he could bring his style of what he wanted to do on the bike to it. So it is that inherent Kawasaki style and then top rack, obviously, he magnifies that as well. Yeah, I think top rack um, took the Yamaha to places that Yamaha hadn't gone before and when they did, they actually found a lot of good things. Yamaha personnel have told me that in the last few races that in in his strange riding style they've had to follow a certain path so the braking goes better for everybody but because they already knew what the bike was good at in other areas they, they knew they had to maintain them as well and f- and finally they ended up with a bike that not didn't just work for him it worked for everybody in Yamaha even though they've all got completely different riding styles the next best Yamaha rider in a championship is a guy who's come from a 600 and is still trying to get rid of that 600 riding style, which couldn't be more different from top rack's riding style. Um, you know, it, it, it's that's, that's what the engineering side of this year has been so fascinating about, is that Yamaha have managed to find an every bike for whoever's riding it. Garrett Gerloff's got a different style. Nozani actually started getting on top of it towards the end. Uh, look at where Yamaha have been winning all over. They've been winning in every championship from MotoGP onwards. Um, so they're obviously on a good SEMA forum, I think the strange thing is that it's because Top Rack's style was so weird, they actually found even more from their bike that they would never have found if there was another rider on it. Um, and I think the, the the thing about the Kawasaki is it rides a certain way and it has to ride a certain way. Um, the trouble is that the bike itself, the engine, the way it's got a high inertia engine, does not help them entering corners anymore and does not help them. And, and if you don't get a corner entry right, every other part of the corner cannot be optimal apexing and then powering the way out you have to get the in every class of racing now the most important thing is how you enter a corner 
in my opinion, I'm, the, the boys might agree or disagree, but that's you. They've got that right, and Top Rack's taking that to an even more extreme way with his breaking. Yeah, I mean this. This is the thing. I mean, you you sort of seeing it in GPs because what's happening in GPs is they're having to find uh, new ways to get out of the corner, which is why I think the ride height devices and the uh, and the aero and all the rest of it, because there was so little to to gain. Um, but sort of traction control electronics got to a certain level on corner entry that they're actually making the difference there was much more much more difficult. And so the you know you're always looking for an advantage. You can't get it on corner exit, so you have to. Try and find it on corner entry and you've really seen like this difference in braking come on I think in all series just because that's where that's where the gains are to, to be made and also I like that also because it, I mean it is about package and setup you have to get the setup right I remember I think Jerez won race for with with, uh, with Johnny and like he just seemed to miss every single apex. He seemed to miss every single corner. He couldn't get the bike stopped. He couldn't get it turned. It was just, it, it looked I mean it looked like it, it's an amazing thing to say of a six-time world champion. He looked like an amateur on the bike just because the bike wasn't doing any of the things that he, that he should have been doing. Um, and, you know, the, the race two, he was outstanding, uh, but but they fixed that. But, yeah, corner entry, really, uh, the, 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 the onus has shift, shifted so much onto corner entry. That's where we make the difference nowadays. Yes, and I think that the, the, the other thing, the human side of it, is that Top Rack took that, the blue bike, to somewhere that, Jonathan had to, hadn't had to go before, so he, even some, though something that was a strength for him ended up being, if not a weakness, somewhere he had to try and find performance increases where there maybe wasn't any, and they, they went round in circles trying to make the bike better all year in that area. Um, I think they did get some fruition at the end of the year, but maybe by trying something again really radical that just came a bit too late. I think it was interesting this season. You watched the first uh, what? Four and a, well, three and a half rounds, and you thought this is just going to be another championship for Johnny. In my opinion, anyway, watching those first three rounds, I think he was on the podium in all nine races. Donington, he was looking strong as well. He won the sprint race that morning, but then the first moment where you thought, "Hold on a second, this isn't normal. This is not something we've seen for the last couple of years." Was in the second race in Donington when he, he crashed out fighting with Toprak at the front, and you suddenly realised that. Top rack was putting them under such severe pressure, and he was having to ride so hard out front to stay ahead of him that uh, mistakes crept into his game, and that was something that um, we just hadn't really seen over the past six years. And became it wasn't a theme this year, but it was ultimately a, a kind of a, a deciding factor, and that kind of ties in with what you were just saying there, Cordo. Yeah, Johnny's had to go to places he hasn't had to go to before. That's it's as simple as that. The package, the team, the setup the bike itself, they've all had to try and go to places that they've never had to to fight in before and every single weekend. The biggest change this year, in my opinion, and we can talk about all the details and we have and we will more, but the biggest thing is that Top Rack very quickly in the, the championship ended up being completely consistent at race winning pace. Virtually no challenger has done that to Jonathan with the exception of Bautista, who was winning every race until they just it all went wrong. And it really went wrong. And guess who was there because he was so consistent behind him, Jonathan. This year, Jonathan had nowhere to go. There was no oxygen of a huge championship lead that lasted beyond one round, two rounds. You know, it, it, there was always somebody, when he, every time he looked around there was top rack. And I think he did make mistakes of his own this year by being a bit too eager. Um, 
for all the technical reasons we said, but also because he just thought, I need to get away from this guy. I need to get some kind of break away from him. And when he tried that, um, Donington and Portimao were two places, two obvious places where that, that backfired badly. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing about Jonathan is his mental strength. He's just so incredibly strong and he's won so much just by imposing his will on other riders, by intimidating them. And I think he tried that with Toprak and Toprak just like, oh yeah, whatever, dude. Uh, he was just completely unimpressed by it. Um, and that, yeah, I think is, I think that's why Jonathan made the mistakes. He made the mistakes because uh, he was trying to impose his will upon the race in the way that he's done it in previous seasons. And he just couldn't break Toprak. Toprak was just, you know, unimpressed. He just sort of sat there and and, and followed and chased and uh, uh, hung in when whenever he needed to. And Gordo, I wanted to ask you a question because we've talked a lot about how when MotoGP riders have come to superbikes, some of them have changed the game. You know, when you look at Biaggi or you look at Cheka, different riders that came in and, and brought with them a very different attitude than what had been the norm in the superbike paddock. Toprak's the opposite of that. He's a superbike rider that, in all likelihood, looks like going to MotoGP. What is it that makes him special compared to what we've seen? Because I'm quite curious then to see what Dave and Neil, what their perspective is from the MotoGP paddock about where Toprak is perceived as well. The thing that unifies everybody in their opinion of Toprak is talent. His riding talent is immense. And he keeps always showing us and showing off for the bike. He, he's been able to, with the help of other people, concentrate and focus on winning races, but winning them all. So he's got that push from the from his cultural side, if you like, from Keenan and everything else, and the way they train, that you have to win every lap, every race all the time. He's now found a way to marry that to consistency, but he's not... He doesn't look like crashing, even though his riding style is massively extreme. He's doing huge stoppies on even on iffy racetracks surfaces. But you don't actually look at a guy and think he's going to crash doing this. He's not out of control. He's just taking control to a new level. Um, so, I, I, but the main thing is cultural to me. He just doesn't. He's not scared of anyone or anything. He just thinks he can beat anybody. And when he does go to MotoGP, he'll carry that on, whether he's 15th, 2nd, or a world champion in two years. Who knows what's going to happen if and when he goes to MotoGP. But he is not scared of anybody or anything, and he does his own thing, his own way. And this year, with all the other things he had behind him, that gave him a world championship. Yeah, I mean, I think you saw that with... Uh, you saw the same thing happen with, with Valentino Rossi, that everyone was afraid of Valentino Rossi. 2006 came along, uh, okay. 2007 came along, Casey Stone had just plain beat him. And all of a sudden, everyone else who came in, they weren't afraid of him anymore. Uh, uh, and that meant that he stopped going from dominating to just being extremely successful. Um, and I think that, that, that this has been sort of very similar here, that, you know, Ray was used to dominating. Uh, top Rack's not impressed. Top Rack, like you say, you know, he's uh, he's not afraid. Of, he's not afraid of anyone, uh, anyone or anything. Uh, and you know, he'll have a go, and that's going to make a difference. I think just watching from the sofa, as I said earlier, it you know, his riding talent is absolutely clear, and it has been clear from when he was in stock a thousand a couple of years back. Um, just his riding style is, is quite unique, and, and how strong he is on the brakes. Um, but just there were several instances this year where you just thought, like that guy has real balls. Like he's not, he's in a, a high pressure championship situation, and he is just repeatedly taking the fight to Ray at the front and not giving an inch and riding really. 
you know, riding on a, on a kind of a, a wave of confidence and not almost within himself thinking I have a, a points lead to protect. There was one um, one instance which I thought really summed up just how confident and, uh, and how ballsy he was. One of the races in Magni Corps, maybe it was the first race that he won and he came across the line on his front wheel doing a stoppy with Ray just behind him. And it was almost as if he knew how close Ray was and it was just like he was saying, look at this, how easy it is for me. Like I'm coming across the line on my front wheel and you're right behind me. You, a six-time world champion. I mean, it's an insane confidence and I, I sort of loved that about him. You know, it just, uh, that was uh, almost a trademark of his through the year. Yeah, I think even if you look at Indonesia, the biggest race of Top Rack's life and he has the chance to win the world championship, all he has to do is finish behind Johnny Going into that last lap, he pulled in six, seven tenths on Ray, and he was trying to win that race to win the championship. Like that was for me one of those moments when you you'd heard all the way through the season, Top Rack saying, "I'm going to win races, and the championship will take care of itself." This was the chance to prove that he was all about winning races, and he went out to try and win the race. And like Gordo said, never looked like crashing. You know, with with the Top Rack the whole way through this season. He hasn't been at fault for any of the retirements he's had. He hasn't crashed during practice sessions. The only time that there's ever really been anything that was a little bit on the limit was maybe in Portimao, and then obviously the Bassani incident whenever he he didn't have his 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 blipper on a, in, on a wet track and almost runs into the side him. So other than that, Toprak never put a foot wrong. Yeah, apart from I mean, really, what impressed me was there was so much hard racing and so much close racing. Uh, and some of the moves that, you know, all of them, you know, Jonathan the same, Jonathan Ray, uh, Scott Redding, Top of Rascal Leo, they were at it hammer and tongs. I mean, you know, they were, they, they, no prisoners were taken whatsoever. And yet they never, ever looked like really, really crashing into each other. Um, you know, there were no crashes there. There were plenty of crashes further further back where riders were, you know, pushing and, and, and going over the limit and taking each other out. But those three managed to produce intense, intense, hard, hard racing without actually managing to sort of, you know, damage each other. Um, one more thing about riding style, especially about Toprak's riding style, is he, I mean, I'd say he'd sort of have a, switching from watching lots and lots of MLGP and then over the weekend going back and watching some of the uh, some of the superbike races, you really get sort of struck by the difference in riding styles. Um, Top Rack has a proper, if you like, superbike riding style. It's a proper sort of larry old bike. Those bikes move around a lot. Um, the 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 tires, the chassis, it's not as stiff, and it means you've got to control the bike in a very very different way. You know, you've got more to do as a rider um, because it doesn't just hold the line. You can't trust the bike to just to hold the line. And it was actually what interesting seeing like Scott Redding on a Ducati, which is obviously, you know, a MotoGP-inspired bike, uh, an ex-Grand Prix rider, had a much smoother uh, riding style. It was much more precise and and uh, sort of smooth on the bike, whereas Toprak was um, dominating the bike. And it was, it, it was sort of interesting to watch. And it sort of makes you think, you know, I'd quite like to see him on a Honda, uh, on a Honda RC 213V. I think that would be quite entertaining. Just going back to what you said there, Dave, about these guys, you know, knocking lumps out of each other so often on track. I just have a question for for both Gordo and Steve. I mean, you were there at every race this year, or more or less every race. Did did it ever boil over? They they seem to be quite amicable off the bike. Sometimes we would see the the little videos that um, WorldSuperbike.com would put up on Twitter behind the scenes, kind of looks at uh, what went on after each race, and you would see the riders in their debriefs and things, and they all looked very very calm afterwards. And you just thought like. 
considering these lads are going for a championship, surely there would be a moment where this would blow up into some big, huge controversy and one of them would come out yelling at the other one. But it, it I don't know, going all the way to the end of the, the championship, it seems still quite amicable between them. Was that was that the case? Yes, uh, and in lots of ways. There was a bit of needle. By the modern standards in Superbike, there was a fair bit of needle this year, uh, mostly between, mostly because of the off-track stuff, not the on-track stuff. The complaint that Kawasaki put in about top rack touching the green at Magnicure, that was a lot of bad blood from then on, and a lot of snidiness and so on going on. Um, obviously, another big example uh, was Reading having a go at top rack for passing on, on the inside in the final corner at Most uh, on the first day, I think. Yeah, the first day. Um, and he was very vocal in his criticism of Topback then. Um, they all gave as good as they got. I'd say Reading was the least aggressive over the season of the three, and he still had his moments. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jonathan said that after all the, the, the furore that went on at Magni Coeur, that if my memory's right here, Steve might have to help me, but I'm sure he said that Topback contacted them like that day or the next day because he saw a watch that Jonathan or someone was wearing and he wanted the details of it. So I think off-track, you know, as they do in these, these international jet setters, um, but they, I think in terms of being human beings off-track, they understood the gig, and I think they were quite happy to um, have a fight. You know, when, when somebody's threatened like Jonathan, he'll start to get a bit more sparky. And when... Top right is so relaxed and everything else, and, he, and every move that happens is okay by him because that's the way he trains with all the guys back in Turkey on the small bikes at the track. He, they, they say that all the time. Keenan backs them up on it. They just go for it all the time. Every corner, they're trying to pass each other all the time. Um, so he's got much wider limits of what's acceptable compared to other people. Um, and Scott won't realizes that he's not in MotoGP, where it, things are much more controlled that way. And also, the bikes are a lot more. If you put yourself into the side of somebody in MotoGP, you probably mean it. In Superbike, because the bike, as you say, the tyres move around a bit more and the, the chassis aren't as strong and everything else, um, yes, it, it can get a bit more sketchy just even when you're going along the side of someone under braking or whatever. So there's other... I think they got on okay, considering what was at stake. But top rack through it all just didn't care. You know, if I mean, he just took it race by race until the last round. Finally, the team had a word with them in the last round about, look, don't crash in race one, it'll make it more difficult in race two. That was the first time they admitted any of them. They were doing anything other than race by race. So that breeds a certain pugilism, I'd say, between them all, you know. And Johnny knew at the end he had to go for it, you know. Um, he needed to make ground up, so he was a bit more aggressive maybe than he would be normally, or had to be normally. So I think for me... Gordo, one of the big things with it is is that top rack can really separate on track and off track. Some riders can't, most riders can't. You know, everything's personal, everything's a battle. Top rack, once he clicks his visor into place, until he sees the checkered flag, all he's thinking about is beating you. But afterwards, all he's thinking about is, wow, that was great, wasn't it? It's almost like when you when you play five a side and you know, you're out to win every tackle, you're out to win the match, and then you finish the game and it's just your mates, and you're there like, oh, that was a great game, wasn't it? And Top Rack's like that when he finishes the race. And I thought Most was a really good example of that. You know, you mentioned about Reading. Reading for all the the persona that he has. He, he doesn't have that scrapper instinct. He's come through from the Grand Prix classes. He's gone through a lot in his career. And 
from whenever he first jumped onto a superbike, he complained about people making moves at Phillip Island. We had the long break. That was when he first made his complaints about Top Rack at Hareth last year. And all the way from that point onwards, he's always talked about Top Rack being on the limit. And Most, it all came to a head. And, you know, Scott reacted really badly to it because everyone in the paddock looked at it and said, you left the door open for him. Of course Top Rack's going to come through. And in Park Fermi afterwards, and it, I, I only heard this secondhand from someone, so I don't know how truthful it is, but Scott was complaining to Top Rack, and apparently Top Rack turned around to him and just said, maybe you should stop crying and just ride the bike. And you know, you're looking at it. If that's any other rider, they're getting decked in the middle of Park Fermi. But Top Rack saying it literally just like, go on, just give me back what I'm giving you. Like I'm not making contact. Let's just go with this. And I think, wasn't it at one of the, the races at Hareth? Maybe it was the second race where they were fighting each other for the, the race win. Uh, afterwards in Park Ferme, Scott said, when he's behind you, you know he's going to try something. And it's almost like that thing that, uh, if you're comparing it to someone in GPs that Mark Marquez has, when he's behind you, you, you know, you always have to be on your toes. You cannot really ride that comfortably because you think this guy could be skirting up the underneath underneath me at any corner here and that in some way is a, a kind of little mental advantage that uh, he seemed to have had over his rivals towards the end of the year yeah i mean that it reminds me of uh, you know rossi versus sort of biagio in Biaggi in Gibbonau, where it was just uh, you know like rossi would just basically sit behind them and they knew something was going to happen and they would lose concentration and crash because they, they knew they were just waiting for it you know it was another way of just putting pressure on and i think it's the same with top rank yeah, I think it's one of those ones that uh, when you look back over the years, there's very few racers that give that aura. And, you know, like when I was a kid and you were looking at Ayrton Senna in Formula One, it was the exact same. Everyone knew when he was coming behind them that he was coming through them. And Top Rack is probably the cleanest rider there is in superbikes. When you talk to all the other riders, they say that, you know, it's very, very rare that you think that if there is an inch, the top rack's going to take a millimeter more than that inch. But he's just on that limit all the time. And Dave, it's always interesting, like whenever we see top rack, we see the same things that Dennis Anju gets criticized for in Moto3. But in Moto3, you can't get away with it. No, exactly. Well, it's a different uh, culture. I think also, again, the, the difference between big bikes and little bikes, where the little bikes, you've got lots and lots of bikes all together. Um, well, you'll you'll have sort of you know ten or fifteen bikes all at the same time, and then if something happens, that it can go very very wrong very very quickly, as we've seen tragically several times this year. With big bikes, I mean, uh, we had some really really close battles. We had some fantastic battles, but it was never more than maybe five bikes together at a certain point, and then it split up, and you'd have three bikes together. And then the, the margin for error, if everything goes wrong, you know, you don't get that sort of snowball effect where everything just sort of falls apart and really nasty things happen. If something goes wrong, there might be a crash, there might be two riders go down, um, there might be minor injuries, but you're not going to get people sort of stuck in the middle of the track, getting hit by other riders. You're going to have sort of this massive uh, sort of complete chaos. Uh, really, the only time you see that is is in the opening laps of a race, where and that happens thankfully very, very rarely, um, and usually has very little to do with actually really aggressive riding, but just the fact that there's so many people together. Yeah, sometimes you get chaos as well, even on the Paddock Nass podcast. We're usually very well-structured boys, but we've ran way past our first ad break on the show. So when we come back, we're going to look at some of the other big talking points from World SBK in 2021. 
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast, and we're looking back at the World SBK season of 2021, and Gordo, this was a very different calendar, a very different feel for us in, in the paddock this year, but it was actually really good that World Superbikes got more of its identity back. We went to places that, you know, the pandemic meant that we've had to go to new tracks, and over the course of the last year, we've gone to Most, Navarra, Estoril. Maybe we're going to Turkey next year. Obviously, we've been at Donington and Magni Cores. So there's half a dozen tracks that MotoGP doesn't go to. Places where superbikes are really able to to forge their own identity. Uh, yes, I mean, let's not forget that was through necessity this year, COVID, etc. We went to a few places that we might not normally have considered going to. Um Navarra's not on the, the list for next year. Uh, Most is. And if Most carry on doing the track improvements that they've spoken about, especially in terms of safety, as well as infrastructure, but definitely uh, in, in terms... There's a few sketchy places in Most, whatever anybody says, and it's fast. It's a really fast track. All those fast corners out the back. But yeah, the identity of Superbike is... When Donna took over Superbike already being the owners of MotoGP, they stress a lot, we want to put clear blue water between us and Superbike. We want to make them different products with different identities. And then we started going to a lot more of the same... It felt like we went to a lot of the the same tracks as each other. Um, And, okay, we always had differences. But I don't want to not go to Assen because MotoGP goes there. I'm glad that we go to Donington and MotoGP goes to Silverstone just because it's two different things, even for the fans to go to two different tracks to go and see the two big things that come to town. Uh, Manicure is a much better racetrack than I. I actually didn't like Manicure the first time I went there. I thought it was a bit bitty and an amalgam of a few other racetracks. Man, it's one of the best racetracks we go to now and the fans love it, even though we're there usually at the end of the year it's raining and horrible. And there's thousands of them, even when you don't get that many fans at Superbike compared to the previous years. So if we can go to Turkey next year, I will be over the moon, although I do want a jetpack to get in and out every day because you'll not be able to get near a place. You will not. Istanbul's got 10 million people or something. They'll all be there. It'll be madness. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I really hope that uh, Superbikes does go to to, to Istanbul Park because just because it's such a fantastic circuit. I mean, you know that 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 corner on the back straight. The what is it? Really, really like 300k uh, left hander or whatever it is. That is that is proper. Oh, yeah, right hander. That's it. Yeah, it's a proper, proper corner. That is, that is a proper corner. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, like, I love the fact that, that Superbikes does have its own identity. Like, Manny Core, I love Manny Core. This fa- it's a fantastic circuit. There's so much like variety and interest to it, and you always, things always happen there. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a track where you can make passes uh, and also where you can actually make up if you lose ground. And I think that's like one of the, key things in racetrack design is actually to have uh, the, the ability to, to not lose ground. Why, why do you 
always have great racing at Athens because you know it, it's really difficult to like make it make a gap at somewhere, somewhere like Athens. But like Manny Cor is one of those. I'm really like glad that you know GP goes to the mall. I mean, I hate the event, but the racetrack is fantastic. Manny Cor, I'm really glad Superbike goes there. It, it does create a separate identity, and, and they're both fantastic racetracks. Yeah, growing up watching World Superbikes in the '90s, it, you know, you had a very clear. Uh, line between the two series, between Grand Prix and between Superbikes. And, and one of those reasons was obviously the, the, the characters on, on either side. And obviously another was the, the racetracks you would go to. Like in 90 Superbike, it was Monza, Hockenheim, Sugo, like these kind of crazy, scary, fast racetracks that uh, GPs didn't go to anymore or or Sugo, which was just um, a random one in, in Japan. And yeah, I think for a while there was a lot of conversation like, well, you know, there's... It's more or less the the kind of the same thing. They're going to the same tracks, and um, yeah, I think it, it's good that they have branched out into a few different circuits. And as you guys were saying, you know, there is a, a clear identity there. And this year they've had the the, the kind of the, the spectacular race and the needle to to go with that. So it's in many aspects, it's it's kind of like you know, World Superbike is back after maybe some years where the championship fights might not have been the most interesting. Yes, and I think in terms of the, the, for want of a better word, the culture, the difference between the two, um, it actually got to the stage whereby all the needle and the rider needle was going on in MotoGP. And we were all having a lot of, you know, respect and people all being pals. And a, and a lot of that's to do with them all being from the same nation, uh, nationality and growing up together and knowing each other for so long. It's difficult to follow with somebody that you've, you've had all your teenage adventures with. But ultimately... The, the good thing about Superbike is that we need to get that kind of wild guys thing back a wee bit. You know, we need to be the kind of outsiders. MotoGP is the big thing and it's going from strength to strength and it's fantastic series. There's so much to admire about it. Um, but it is like two-wheel Formula 1. We want to be back to being street fighters. We want every biker, whatever kind of biker, to go to Superbike because they've all got a dog in the fight whether it's manufacturer, the spirit of it, the kind of access you get to the riders, the ability to be part of the family rather than being, you know, you know, MotoGP's a bit, there's a wee bit of Elysium going on at MotoGP, but that's not a bad thing because it, it gives you uh, the knowledge that this is the this is the Grand Prix, this is a Blue Ribbon event, this is the big thing that not everybody can be part of automatically just by buying a ticket. You know, it's it's maybe not good for the fans in some ways, but it's also they know they're at the big thing when they they they've got this all these palaces in the paddock, etc. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot like going to see a band, um, uh, like MotoGP is is going to see a band in a stadium, in a massive rock, a huge event. It's a, it's a very special event, but yeah, it's all very distant and and. Um, abstract it's very much a, you know a manufactured show whereas superbikes always feels much more like you know going to not quite a pub i wouldn't say that but it's, you know like a, a going to see a proper band in a proper smaller venue where you can actually sort of feel you can get up to the stage and feel the performance you can really like interact with them. it's it, it it's it's much more it's a much more personal and intimate um experience i mean i, I love going to superbike races i don't go to enough of them um but yeah, the, the feeling of the paddock is great. I think the access that the fans great is absolutely astonishing, uh, and it's a great show. 
And the one thing that's been missing in the last few years is is fans, enough fans. Now, COVID's a whole different matter. But pre-COVID, there weren't enough people going to Superbike weekends. You can put a lot of that down to Jonathan dominating and knowing who the champion's going to be, etc. But they've also got a kind of demarcation line between things where people thought, well, MotoGP is the big thing. That's, I'm only interested in MotoGP now. You had people's own domestic championships getting a bit more kind of let's keep all our talent here and building themselves up and you be a rival to World Superbike. Well, you know, unfortunately, Super, World Superbike took a period of 10 years or so to happen, but became a kind of outside thing that even the bikers of the world didn't necessarily go to every weekend. It used to be a must-do thing in all the big territories. Everybody went in Australia. Everybody went in America. You couldn't move in Laguna Seca for fans at Superbike events many years ago. The last few times you go, you know, they're not really going. We need the fans back. And if this year has got one important marker to leave for the next five years, is that a lot of people were sitting at home thinking, you know what, I've got to go to Donington next year. Or, you know, I've really got to go to Magnicure. Or I've got to go to somewhere else. Um, what we need now are more nationalities and up the top. And I think that may be something we're about to move on to shortly, Steve. Yeah, I was just going to say, Gordo, like it's been an out with the old, in with the new couple of years in World SBK. And this year in particular, you're looking at Chaz Davis, Leon Haslam, Tom Sykes, three of the established stars of the last 10, 15 years in the championship. And they're all, in all likelihood, finished on the on the world stage, at least as a full-time rider. And we've had young riders coming through, whether you're looking at Rinaldi winning races, Bassani's impressed, Locatelli's been amazing. You know, there's Top Rack, obviously, as well. There's lots of guys that have come in now. And like you said, Gordo, as well, they're not all Brits. You know, the big problem going forward is actually going to be there's no Brits coming through. There's very few that you look at and, and think, who's going to be that next British rider? It could be, like, obviously, it looks like for next year, Taz McKenzie's going to do three wild cards for Yamaha, which is going to be really positive. And that's going to be something that's going to give, you know, a young a younger British rider coming from BSB the chance to show what he can do. You know, and it's going to be a tracks that he knows. It's probably going to be Ass and Donington. And then you wait and see where the third one's going to be. But, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what he can do because he needs to come in and do something, get himself onto a good seat, and then be that next British rider. Yeah, there's. I mean, we could talk about this for another couple of hours, so we, and I won't, don't worry. But there are lots of reasons why the next generation of British riders is the big problem. There's lots of reasons why. One is that BSB wants to keep them. They're not like the Italian Championship, a feeder class to put people into World Championship racing. That's not what BSB sees itself as. Um the the riders are finding it difficult to break in because unfortunately now, as is the case in a lot of championship classes, you have to bring money. So they're used to getting paid in the UK, however small. Uh, you know, even if you win the championship, I don't think you're going to become an instant millionaire overnight in, in BSB. But you're getting a salary, you're the big guy, and somebody's asking you for money to go and race in the World Championship, which should be a natural progression. If there's one thing that people in charge of racing have to do is to make a, a ladder through the classes to get to in one direction MotoGP and the other direction World Superbike and then shuffle between the two if you can that's beginning to happen but not enough so there has to be a, a, a system in place that gets any BSB rider for example to make sure there's good British riders on the, the grid in the future should be given assistance whether it's from the National Federation whether it's from Superbike and sponsors going down and bringing them there Whatever it is, there. this is the big hole 
the talent hole that's going to develop in the Superbike World Championship if we're not very careful. Yeah, it's interesting that BSB... I mean, the, the trouble is there's... No, the trouble is there's not enough mo- uh, money in motorcycle racing full stop, basically, because, you know, even in the Grand Prix paddock, there's lots and lots of riders. Not in MotoGP anymore, um, but uh, certainly in the Grand, Grand Prix paddock, there's lots and lots of people who have to bring money to actually go racing. Uh, but, I mean, it's interesting seeing the, like, the parallels between BSB now and the AMA, say, a decade or more ago when it was Speeds versus Maladin, and it took uh, almost like the retirement of Maladin um, or the, the desire of Ben Spees to come to World Superbike Championship to actually change that mentality. You know, like AMA was its own big show. There was lots of money to be made there. Uh, I think Ben took a pay cut to come uh, sure. to go racing. Without question. Without question. Yeah. Question. yeah. Uh, to go racing. But he wanted to do it. Like he had a goal. He wanted to come to the World Championship and that sort of elevated the, the, the status of it. And in Superbikes, as you say, or in BSB, Everyone is sort of, you know, comfortable just to sort of sit there. And obviously, like, you know, Stuart Hicks and, uh, has his own championship to run and he has to make that financially viable. And he's been very good at doing that. Um, and the way to do that is to keep talented riders because also riders are the... Uh, in the end, people watch racing because... Because of the riders, it's the personality of riders, and that's been a really big, big thing this year uh, that we've got these riders coming through. And I think it is fantastic. This is one of the questions that I actually had for for, for the pair of you, Steve and, and Gordo. It does feel like, like in MotoGP, we've just seen like a, a, a complete change of generation of riders. Like all of the old ones are gone. Uh, the uh, you know Alicia Spargo is all of a sudden you know the old man of uh, uh, of the paddock, and now we're seeing this in superbikes as well. We've got uh, young riders come in, and also homegrown riders, proper superbike riders. We have a superbike champion, a, a world superbike champion from inside the paddock. Uh, we have people like Bassani and Rinaldi who are superbike riders. They, you know they they came through they came through the system. Is there like this generational change happening? Well, I think one of the big things as well is. Someone like Manuel Gonzalez coming through from a rider that couldn't raise the budget to race in the Spanish Championship. I think he did some European Talent Cup races and that was it. And then he went on to a th- onto a Super Sport 300 bike because it was the only thing that was affordable for him. Went on, wins a World Championship, looks really good on a Super Sport bike, gets picked up by Yamaha to be in their Moto2 team. You know, there's talent in the Superbike paddock. And I think Gonzo is one of those ones that sort of showed people that you can get a young rider there, bring them through. Because, you know, with the best will in the world, Scott DeRue and Anna Carrasco coming into the 300 class, they were never going to get an awful lot of opportunities on bigger bikes because unless they did something amazing, everyone knew what they were getting from them. Whereas when a young rider comes in and is able to beat them, you're able to see, well, you know, maybe they've actually got something about themselves that can translate a little bit further up the food chain. You know, Adrian Huertes this year, Gordo, very similar to Gonzalez. It's going to be interesting to see how he adapts onto a super sport bike because some 300 riders have done a really good job of that. Like you look at Uno Radre during the course of this year, he was a top 10 runner in Supersport. You know, he did a good job jumping through and it shows that you know, young riders can progress in the production championship on the world stage as well. They don't have to just come from BSB like they did 15, 20 years ago. Well, we've had five years of 300 Supersport replacing the Superstock classes. Um, and that was very controversial at the time. A lot of riders said they're not going to be good breeding grounds for new young riders to make the jump to Supersport or Superbike. Um, and they've been proved correct for a long time. Now, 
we are seeing riders moving up to Supersport. And there's a few this year, Tom Booth, Amos as well, that are going to be racing. Jeffrey Booth is, is head, is done two races already. The, how those guys get on is they're going to be the true litmus test of whether the 300s was a, a class. It's, it's a huge entertainment, obviously, but whether it's a class that's really going to supersede those superstar classes, which as we are seeing with going back to what David said and Neil said and everybody said is, that's the breeding ground for your, your your new top guys in Superbike. Look at all those guys, you know, with the odd exception that come from Moto2, all those guys are, are products of th- 600,000 Superstock racing. So 300 Tasty has now done its job and got enough riders up there in one go to see how they all go in a new Supersport, new look Supersport Championship next year. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. Neil, obviously enough, like Moto Three and Moto Two is one of your main championships in the Grand Prix paddock, and you have had to you know, spend a lot of time studying the young riders coming through. You would have seen Locatelli on a Moto Two bike, obviously Tom Booth Amos on a Moto Three bike. There's two riders that, you know, as Gordo said, TBA is going to move on to a 600 next year. We'll wait and see how he does. I think that there's one of those big question marks about Booth Amos, you know, his age, different things as well, to see how he's going to adapt to that bike. Locatelli, when he came across, wasn't viewed as really being all that special. You know, he was a, a good Moto Three rider, point scorer in Moto Two, but you know, he kind of his career kind of flamed out a bit in the Grand Prix paddock. And now we get Iker Lecaona, a rider coming through on the crest of a wave, second half of the year, really impressive. And Javi Vieira, who's probably closer to Locatelli than what we see from other Grand Prix riders coming across, a rider that you know has had good chances in the Grand Prix paddock, but never really quite got to show everything he could do. So I'm quite curious to see what your thoughts is for the likes of TBA and Locker that when they came across, what you would have expected for them and then those two riders for next year. Yeah, I mean, um, what I expected from Locatelli wasn't a massive deal. I think he was a little underrated, maybe in his time in Moto2. He was super consistent, always in the points, um, 8th to 12th normally. And, you know, that in itself is uh, is quite an achievement in, in the Moto2 class because it, it is so cutthroat and it's difficult to, to be that consistent. But he was never, you know, he's never at the point where he was even looking like maybe fighting for podiums. So to see his rise, you know, winning almost every race in World Supersport last year, having a great rookie season in, in World Superbike this year was a bit of a surprise. Um, and it, it is quite interesting now that certain... Um, you know, we've obviously seen many guys come across from MotoGP to World Superbike in the past, but... I think generally you could say they've been maybe older or maybe coming into the, the twilight of the careers, maybe perhaps you could say. Um, but, you know, Lekawona is, is what, 21? Vierge, um, you know, still has a lot to prove. And I think it's quite exciting and interesting that Honda has taken a, a kind of a, a total philosophical change in its rider lineup next year. Um, going out with the, the, the more experienced guys and looking at Two young guys that still have very a great deal to to prove, um, still very very hungry, and have shown uh, a lot of talent. I mean, Vierge is a, a tough one. I don't think we've really seen the best of him in Moto Two. It's difficult to say exactly what went on behind the scenes this year. We know there were some like issues with funding in that Petronas team in in two thousand and twenty one, um, and that obviously I think was a factor in it maybe not achieving the results we expected from them but you know we know Vieira is a talent Lecaona is super fast um, does he have the, the intellect and the, the the kind of the relentless focus to be a world champion I'm not sure 
but those are some things that you can maybe learn. He's definitely he's definitely fast enough. So yeah, I think it's quite interesting to see um, just how those guys transition next year. One of the things uh, which has sort of puzzled me, and you know, uh, God own Steve, you'd be better at this, is um, it seems like it, the the step from supersport to superbikes is very big as well. You don't see it, it's not a transition that riders make naturally quite successfully. Um, it, am I seeing this wrong or what? I think you're seeing it correct from the past, but not potentially from the future, because I think the changes that Pirelli made to the tires have meant that you haven't had to ride in a specific way on a superbike. Now, those tires, you seem to be able to ride lots of different ways. Gordo mentioned it earlier on about Locatelli. He still tries to ride like a super sport rider, trying to carry the corner speed. Tom Sykes has actually had one of his better years in the last few years in terms of being able to manage a tire. He obviously does things completely different to most riders. And then you've got your top rack, your Johnny, all these different styles. So I think probably up until 2018, it was a big transition to try and get the most out of the tires when you jumped onto a superbike. That's made it a lot easier for a lot of riders. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of elements that work there, but it's never been easy for anybody to go from super sport to superbike straight away, with the odd exception, who have been exceptional riders. Um, what we've seen an awful lot of um, is riders who have had that, the best training you can have as a rider is to go through the MotoGP paddock, because you're racing against top other top riders from a very young age, everybody's fast, and all the way down the, the classes... You, if you leave Moto Two and come to World Supersport, you are seasons ahead of a equivalent age rider in terms of your preparation to go World Championship racing and Supersport racing. That's why so many of them. You look at the last four years. You know, most of them have been, uh, you know, real products of MotoGP racing because they come arrive finished. It's like when um, when Locatelli John Bardell last year, his team boss said, it's like a, ha, receiving a new rider who's completed his university course with good marks. He says that you're starting at a better way. He, Locatelli went into the best team in Supersport. that had been winning everything with the fastest bike and already able to, to judge it and go, okay, okay, it wasn't a super bike, but it was a much similar, more similar bike to uh, what he'd been on. And look at what he did with it. Quite amazing. And, you know, before that, we've had riders who, Krumenacker won the World Championship. Um, because, partly to me, because of the training that he'd had in, in Moto 2, and he wasn't the greatest Moto 2 rider ever. Um, but the, the, when they're given the tools to be able to win, and fewer riders of the same level to race against, then they stand a good chance. And confidence breeds confidence. Yeah, because even Tommy Aguilar this year, again, follows that trend. You know, when you go back to Cortese, good riders in the Grand Prix paddock, and there was a reason why they had, you know, a couple of hundred Grand Prix starts, but they never quite were able to just get it all to click into place in Grand Prix, and then suddenly they go on to you know a top a top super sports team, and they were able to to make that big change. And it could be interesting to see Bulaga next year. Um, you know, a guy that uh, has insane amounts of talent, but just not quite the ability to get his whole game together in Moto2 um, maybe I'm not sure whether it's been confirmed Manzi could be another one if he eventually switches across to, to World Super Sport you know these are two guys that are seriously talented and maybe if you give them the tools to fight at the front they could be you know guys that do something similar to what Egeto's done this year yeah Manzi jumped on a GMT94 bike and Haret and was instantly inside the top 10 and you look at uh, Baldassari looks like he's going to race there next year Bulug is an interesting one for me Neil because 
obviously in the Spanish Championship, he came through to the Grand Prix classes in in the in the World Championship as a Moto Three Junior World Champion. But it was a year that had an asterisk because I think Joan Mayer missed half the season. I think it might have been Albert Arenas or, or Canet was coming through at the same time. They missed a lot of races, and Bulaga was just there every week, did a good job, won the championship. But it created a perception that he was probably a much more rounded package earlier in his career than he actually was. Mayer and Canet and you know, and and a few other riders from that, that time in CEV were probably a little bit further along their development. And now's the time when Bulaga after a little bit of a slide down the teams because he wasn't able to live up to the to the expectations, now he gets the chance to go into Super Sport on a Ducati. A lot of support there from Bologna, and it's a great opportunity for him. Yeah, superb opportunity. Um, I guess that bike is maybe a bit of an unproven package at the moment, but uh, you can't imagine Ducati doing things by halves. Um, I do think he's he is a big talent. You, you mentioned that, that Junior World Championship he won. I mean, those names that he came up against, Joanne Mayer, I mean, Mir, I think, was a bit crash-happy in that, that season and was on a, a pretty crappy old bike. But still, it's Joanne Mir, um, MotoGP world champion, and he beat him over that season. Um, and he was, I think, on pole position and on the podium in his fourth GP, you know, as a, as a world championship rookie. So, um, yeah, the, the, the talent is, is without question. I think it's just more the, the application with, uh, with Beluga um, that has been the issue Um and, and, and kind of working it out. So, yeah, I think he could be he could be one to watch perhaps next year. I have to say, just before we take another ad break, one of the things that I found interesting was when Dave was talking about the depth that riders have when they're coming through. And I thought that Garrett Gerloff was a good example of that as well this year, Gordo, because Gerloff's talent is through the roof. But unfortunately, his floor was very low this year as well. So it meant that there was big highs and lows for him. Obviously, big issues inside the garage inside the the whole relationship with Yamaha after the crash with Top Racket Assen and he never really recovered from it but one of the things for Gerloff that's always interesting and worth remembering is whenever he was in America he was racing against JD Beach on a super sport bike Cambobier on a super bike and there was typically a pretty big gap to the rest of the field so a bit like what Dave was saying about you know riders when they they come in and they have to deal with a big depth in the Grand Prix classes. When you're coming from some of the domestic championships and superbikes, you know, you might only have two, three guys that are at that world championship level. So you don't really push yourself to the same extent as whenever you turn up in a, in, in a world championship race and you might be 12th, 13th, 14th, giving it absolutely everything you got. I think that was one of the big things that is going to be one of the interesting things to watch over the winter to see how Gerloff recovers and what he can do to start the next season. Yeah, Gerloff's second season started off quite well. You know, I mean, he had podiums and things. We're thinking, okay, here we go. But he's got one flaw in his riding, and that is his early laps with other riders. It's been a, not a constant, but it's been a repeating problem he's had. He, he, it's, it's just like he's not able to work out that spatial awareness thing of so many other equally fast riders all around about him and he can't work out when he gets to the front the apex of a corner why someone else is there when he thinks he's done everything right to be the first guy there it turns out someone else is there um, it's not a new problem it is actually to me the only real hole in his makeup as a rider um, and it all became very psychological and destroyed his season in the end really um, he looked haunted 
after that Assen thing. I mean, literally every time he spoke to him, he was wide-eyed and, and defensive and so on. Up to that point, every time he'd been involved in any kind of incident, it was always someone else's fault. It was nothing to do with him. I did this, I did that. He ended up in Assen crashing as well during one of the practice sessions, or Super Bowl, because, as he said, he was only a little bit offline and, you know, it was only a little bit different and had a crash. Well, yeah, that's the, 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 the margins you're operating at when you get to try and find that last part of a tenth in Super Bowl. So I think it is just a learning development path for Gerloff that went way backwards after the Assen incident. Um, in some ways you could say, well, it's all his own doing. But he really needs to just get over it and go back to the guy he was with better judgment in those first or second laps. The first or second corners, because that's where all his problems, or most of his problems, uh, ended up leading him to that huge lack of confidence and probably having a riot act read to him, etc. Um, I listened to him on a, a, another podcast, an American-based podcast the other day, and his whole, uh, he was like, sounded like a different person. Then he, then he speaks to us. We've really found it really difficult to try to get any information about what's actually really wrong, Garrett, in the last half of the season. And he was very, he still wouldn't tell you. He was a lot more open there, maybe because he feels more comfortable in that environment. I don't know. But he needs to sort one aspect of his riding out and then he'll be back to a potential champion in the future, I'm sure. He's just intimidated by that gruff Scottish accent, Gordo. <laughs> well, no one else is. <laughs> No one else says the. I'll, I'll be honest. One of my highlights of the year was me and Gordo were waiting for Top Rack for a debrief at the end of it. Could have been at Donington, and uh, we were just chatting away to each other. Blah, 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 blah. And Top Rack came over, and we we said something to him, and Top Rack just looked blankly at us, and then turned to the two of us and just said, "I have no idea what was just said," and walked straight past us. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the fear that's the fear that the journalists told in World SBK for these these top riders May I ask a, ask a question once at a MotoGP Yamaha press conference at Motegi about remember the year they brought the mad uh, bike with the, one, the, the monoshock on the outside at the back and a few other real technical developments and then they dropped it and I asked a question of all the technical people at Yamaha about this, why did you drop that bike? And absolutely none of them understood it. And then the Australian Yamaha PR guy had to translate Scottish into Australian to English for the Japanese technicians to understand what was going on. This is a, this is this this is a, a normal day for me when you ask people a question and they go, "Huh?" Yeah, you know, I have to I have to speak standard English. I have to concentrate to do it. Simple as that. I'll be honest. I'm sure Gordo said something really interesting there, but it's not going to be as interesting. As, as Jensen's readout for uh, our next ad break. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Gordo, just before we finish up on our big talking points and big topics from this year, what about BMW and Honda? We haven't really mentioned them so far. BMW were able to win a race with Michael Vandermark. Vandermark actually did really well this year, finished sixth in the World Championship. And then Alvaro Bautista, we saw on the podium for Honda, we saw Haslam on the front row of the grid. And Honda made some progress, but World Superbikes is so competitive right now with Yamaha, Ducati, Kawasaki pretty much locking out the podium every week it's a real challenge for anyone to break into that yes the the bmw is a relatively updated bike um they got their extra revs they got a new engine they, they made some reliability improvements although it's still work to do um for those guys they had their moments this year that bike's nearly there they have one consistent problem that everyone that rides it says the same thing about uh that initial braking and corner entry the control of the back end of the bike isn't what it should be. Every single rider, no matter what the riding style, had the same basic complaint about the bike. So if they can fix that, I think they're ready to win. Um, Honda, uh, the everything that the riders that have been on it have said is basically the same, although they're trying to be diplomatic. They can't feel when the bike's on the limit. It doesn't matter what bike you ride. If you don't know when you're approaching the limit, it doesn't matter how good a rider you are. If you don't know when you're about to lose the front, you're going to lose the front a lot. Or you're going to finish 10th. So, you saw how many times this year, the same as last year, whenever the riders get to the point of thinking, oh, they're doing well today, half the time they wouldn't make the end of the race. So, they need to fix that problem before they let two rookies from MotoGP paddock loose on it. Um, it's quite obvious what their problems are. To me, that's what they need to do. Uh, the lack of understanding where the where the limit of the front end is is uh, I mean it's exactly the same problem they got in MotoGP it's just that they have a solution for that uh, in MotoGP um, but unfortunately uh, he's racing in MotoGP and Mark Marquez is not going to go across the, the superbike to actually fix it because they, I mean you can you can you know, that's why he has all the front end losses you know it, 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 this is why you get all these spectacular saves because he can, you know, he knows he he knows he, that he doesn't know what the front end is going to do. When it goes, he just sorts it out. Um, but the the ability to be able to do that is so extraordinarily rare that you can't do that. You really need to fix the bike, which is what you know. The, the Honda are finally doing a MotoGP for next year. They hope, um, uh, but they need to do it in superbikes as well. And the other problem in superbikes, other issue in superbikes is that everybody's using the same tyres which despite uh, the lap times that they can set and how well they hold together for all the races now are still effectively road-based products turned into racing tyres quite deliberately that was why Pirelli became the single make tyre producer in World Superbike the characteristics are completely different from MotoGP where the tyres are much softer even now um, and it's just a different way of, of being. If you had a stiffer front tyre, uh, maybe it would improve things for certain bikes and maybe make things worse for others. But one of the big complaints that the manufacturers made when we went to single make tyres and chose Pirelli was that they all off the record, obviously, they all said, look, we're going to have to go back and redesign our range of super, super hyper sports bikes because they were all we designed ours to work on Dunlops. And they designed theirs to work on Bridgestones. And they designed theirs to work on Pirellis. So it's such an integral part of the entire machine setup and suspension package that if you know you're going to be racing Bridgestones, you would engineer your chassis a certain way. 
if you knew you're going to be running Dunlops, you're going to engineer yourself a certain way. Michelin's, Pirelli's, you name it. And that was one of the big complaints. Now, we've been on Pirelli's forever. But on, when Honda came back, their great experience in, in racing, they built a kind of a very extreme engine architecture, even though they used a fireblade across the frame four cylinder. But ultimately, they went very MotoGP with it. Maybe that was, maybe they did the same on the chassis side. And it just won't work properly with the Pirellis in the condition it is now. That that might be the issue, but they're, they're not telling us what the issues are. But what the riders are saying, however diplomatically and in circles they're trying to say it, is that they can't get the fuel when they're on the limit. Well, let, let's uh, move away from being in circles, Gordo, to going into a bit of a lightning round for you. We got some questions in from some of our listeners and one of the questions came in and uh, it was actually from two different listeners, Paul and Turbo, and both of them asked basically about Kawasaki and the 500 revs. Will we see Kawasaki get those revs at any stage or do you think Kawasaki just need to come out with a whole new bike for that? Uh, well, they won't get them due to performance because the lead Kawasaki rider did so well that, you know, there's no... There's no reason to, if you look at the results, to, to allow a, a God Clause entry and say, OK, we'll give you 250 extra revs. Um, Jonathan Ray nearly won the World Championship this year. So I doubt it from that side of point of view. The same bike, as far as I'm aware, will be on track next year um, that wasn't changed enough from the previous one. I don't see why they would be allowed to, even if it might be the best thing they can do to allow all those Kawasaki teams in the championship to be competitive with bikes, all of which have got faster engines now. We've got a question from Guido as well, Gordo, when he's asking, I think this is quite optimistic, will we ever see Imola and Laguna back on the calendar? <sighs> I'd love to go to Laguna and Imola again. Um, unless people want to pay for it, no. It's all down to money. If people want to have a, a bike race at Imola, they'll need to pay for it like everybody else does to run a race. Um, they've got other stuff that obviously makes them more money. Um, and, and it's a willpower. There is a certain degree of will of having a super bike race. You know, you probably don't make money on it. You have to pay the organisers money that you might not recoup. Uh, Laguna? Phew. Laguna, every year we went to Laguna, it was a question of where are we going to Laguna. You know, even in the last few years that we did. So... Again, someone needs to front the doubt, the, the dosh, um, and, and as things are going to go, keep improving track safety. Yeah, I mean, my understanding at Laguna is it's, it's something like a, a non-profit organization. It's not actually like a privately owned uh, business. And as a consequence, uh, it's much more difficult for them. You know, they can't make a profit. Uh, you know, they're, they're literally not allowed to make a profit. And that makes it much more difficult to actually, uh, you know, finance and balance all of these things. And it is, it, it, it's a terrible shame that... Um, um, because I think it is like I'm not a fan of Laguna as a MotoGP track because I think the bikes are just too fast uh, and the track is too tight for it. I think it is much better as a superbike track and certainly as a, a super sport or a Moto Two track. I think it's absolutely fantastic for that that level of performance, if you like, um, and it's spectacular to watch. But it's just um, yeah, financially, I can't see it. I can't see it happening. Yeah, I've always sort of felt that for the US, it's always a bit of a shame that Laguna, great track but a very old facility. And then you go to Coda, a great facility and a not-so-great track that suddenly became the bumpiest thing in the world. And uh, there's some fantastic places to go racing in the US, and I think especially for superbike racing. 
and uh, it'd be interesting to see if and when we get back to the US down the line. Gordo, one last question from our listeners. Avanish is asking, uh, what happened to Giannis Folger this year? Because he went from, you know, when we last saw him in MotoGP, battling at the front in the Saxon ring, to, you know, we barely even saw a flash from Folger this year that would have given you a reason for optimism on the BMW. I think fundamentally, Aston, he had some great testing performances. Um, he was an integral part of the BMW test system. That was part of the reason for him being there in a nice new team. Everything looked good, but when he got hurt, um, that determined an awful lot of things for him. And then the BMW, uh, they, they had their, obviously they had some issues, a team starting and stopping. Um, I think Fogger ultimately became confidence. I didn't speak to him that often about stuff, but it's a real shame we didn't see the best of him because he could obviously ride a superbike, given what he did in Germany and did what he did when he did it came as a wildcard. Um, I think it was just a, a, too many things against him and obviously having that big crash was probably the number one thing. Um, we saw that in Grand Prix as well, uh, that Folger is an incredibly talented racer. And when he's on it, he's one of the very, very best in the world. It's just that he does have these sort of like mental blockades um, where uh, he's not good at dealing with stress, uh, dealing with uh, when things go wrong, uh, injury again. He's a real one of the purest confidence riders you'll see. And when the confidence is there, he's absolutely amazing when the when the confidence isn't there um then yeah he's just absolutely nowhere so it's it, it's very very difficult it's a shame it's a shame because of just the pure sheer talent he has but um you know part of being a motorcycle racer is one of the talents you need is this mental strength the ability to uh, understand what you can do on a day accept it and move on sort of thing and 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 to put other things to the to, to the back of your mind yeah, well, let's move on to quick fire round to finish off the uh, World SBK Review Show. C- C- Gordo, can I have a question? Go on ahead, Dave. Because I, I mean, well, that uh, was a question, uh, by the way. So that was your question. So we'll, we'll disregard <laughs> you, Dave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is why. Uh, th- this is why um, uh, my, uh, my my wishes always uh, end up um, uh, not being granted. Um, the, the the new tracks obviously we saw sort of lots of new tracks we saw most we saw navara we saw mandalica um what was your impressions of them i mean what was were they uh, good tracks were they well suited to superbikes what what were they like i loved most because moto gp could never in a million years go to most so it's quite cool actually to have somewhere that's there just for superbikes I think other than like turn one and turn two was terrible in, in Most. And that's obviously a layout that they need to improve and then the bumps on the entry. But it's all work that can be done. There's a bit of safety work to be done. But uh, overall, I think everyone really enjoyed Most. It's quite a cool track. And Gordo, I'm sure you agree. It was a track that looked like Brands Hatch at the back end of it. You know, it felt like you were at a British superbike track, which I thought was really cool gave us that bit of an identity again, like I said earlier in the show. Most was the most amazing weekend in lots of different ways. Um, it was like, it's basically a commie track from the old days. That was what they did with it. Um, and that explains some of the drawbacks and some of the good things about it. It was the weirdest venue. When you stand looking along the length of it, there's this beautiful fairy tale castle and all typically Central European evergreen woodland 
running up to it. It was just fantastic. And then you looked down the hill and there was like Satan's cotton mill going on down the bottom with, you know, smoke and flame coming out. It was like some oil distillation thing. It's just the most weird place, the most incredibly beautiful natural landscape destroyed by man, um, you know, and during and after the communist era. The racetrack was laid out where in a tiny little narrow ribbon of tarmac. Um, it's it's like hemmed in on every side. But there's two fantastic grandstands at the top where you can look down and see almost every corner of the whole track. It was a to me there's no more contrasty track that we go to. Imola was fantastic because again you were hemmed in at one side, it made it difficult to work in, but it also made it unique and, and compelling. Um and and it's like you know, I love going to Checo. I think it's a great place to go. I really love going to Bruno. Um and they've they've got a real ambition there. If they turn Moist into the racetrack that they're talking about now and what we've been rumoured from the the powers that be is going to be, we're mint. You know, it's going to be a really good venue. I can't see, because of the location of it, it being as safe as a Grand Prix venue needs to be on an FIM A grade. Um, And it's pretty sketchy in a few places, as I probably touched on earlier. Fix that, we're good. It's it's a great venue. And And the other... You know, Steve, Navarra? Um, well, i tell you what. I'll say the same thing about Navarra that I said to everyone when we arrived there. If that track was built tomorrow in the UK, it would be the best bike facility in the UK. And it's the seventh best track in Spain. And I think that shows you everything you need to know about it. That's not a, an unfair. It might be a little bit extreme, but it's not an unfair comment. I get exactly what you mean. It's very, very well-appointed. And when you look at the the garages, the media center, race direction, medical center, they're better than everything, including Silverstone, because for the Grand Prix, we don't go to the wing. We go to the old pit complex, Navarra, brand new. Obviously enough, the track surface was super bumpy. So that's something that needs to be improved. But I actually quite liked as well that it was a little bit of a go-karty track. You know, you had a lot of first and second gear corners. Again, it was another time this year where we we pushed all the bikes to try and find different things. And like obviously enough, over the course of the last 15 years, 20 years, all the, the Herman Tilke tracks that have taken over World Championship Racing, I think it was quite cool to go to somewhere that's very different. Argentina's been like that for us as well. Um, Mandelica is certainly like that and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone is going to look forward to going to Indonesia for the test in the in the spring and then obviously the first race but like for us for Superbikes it was perfect Gordo you know we arrived and there was still work being done but everything got done obviously enough the rainy conditions meant that uh, you know we, we lost a race but you know it can rain at pretty much any time in the, of the year with that volume from September all the way through to, to April in those sort of areas. So we got a little bit unlucky, but it's also, that's just the way that the calendar goes. Because we used to go to Sepangordo in the middle of June and people complained about it being too hot and different things like that. So you know, when you're going to the tropics or when you're going into those sort of regions, there's there's always give and take. Yes, I and mean, we maybe need to look at the schedule. If they want to continue doing three races a weekend, we maybe need to look at the schedule the, the, around like that if we want to have guaranteed dry races. Um, but Mandalika was fantastic. I mean, yeah, the the infrastructure around about it needs a lot of stuff down to it. The actual, it's no palace. It's not some glory thing. 
Um, it's very utilitarian. Even when they finish it, it's still going to be pretty utilitarian. But everything works. All the things that you moan about other tracks didn't have enough of, they had them. Um, the the pe- I mean, the biggest thing about Indonesia was how many media were there. We went for the first like rider scrum in the proper uh, one floor up from the media centre uh, conference room, all laid out, and and it was you couldn't get a seat. There was just all these people. It was like wow. Normally there's like five or six of us going oh, hello, hello, hi. And there was all these people you'd never seen before, all totally enthused, and they all got outlets. They weren't there on a jolly. They've all got out news outlets. They were all either... They, I've never seen so many TV people at a superbike race in years as well. They must have had four different places. I'll be honest, I've never seen Gordo chased for so many autographs as well and selfies. <laughs> never happened. Never happened. Don't listen to the modest Scotsman. Don't listen to the modest Scotsman. I am not Michael Scott or Matt Oxley. These, these things don't happen to me. Which I can only say is beneficial to people's photo records on their phone if they don't have a selfie taken with me. <laughs> and you'd have to hold the phone that way to get us both in, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be able to do it up the way. You, you, you definitely need one of Gino Ria's uh, selfie sticks, Gordo, for that one. But uh, I'll I tell you what, just before we finish up, I want to have a quick fire round, guys. And uh, Gordo, me and you will go last just so that David and Neil have a little bit more options to choose from for everything. But... Uh, David, what was your biggest surprise watching uh, Superbikes this year? No, honestly, I think the biggest surprise was the fact that Jonathan Ray could not dominate. Um, He threw everything at it. He threw absolutely everything at it. Uh, And it it was water off a duck's back. Um, that I think was really the biggest surprise because I was not expecting uh, expecting that. There's lots of uh, other sort of you know, there was a, a, really so much to like about this uh, about this superbike season. I really really enjoyed it, but the fact that Jonathan Ray could not impose his will on this championship as he's done in the past, I think um, it's fascinating. And I also the fact that he lost that he won that last race that last race the very last race when it didn't matter anymore it mattered so much to Jonathan because it's about next year it's about starting off the process of trying to win the 20 win in 2022 that uh, again really interesting but the fact that he couldn't dominate this year that he couldn't impose his will on the championship that I think was was really a surprise. Neil, um, David obviously touched on about six different topics there, but uh, what was <laughs> what was what was your moment of the year? Yeah, don't worry, Steve. I'm not. I'm well used to that from the uh, the GP show that we do every week. Um, I would say it, a similar kind of thing to Dave. I mean, there was a few things I was maybe expecting a bit more from BMW when they signed Vandermark. I was quite surprised by Bassani and how fast and kind of, kind of consistent he was. He looks like a, a kind of common star of Superbike um, in future years. But yeah, just the the sheer level that Top Rack showed. I mean, we're talking about one of the great championships, I think, that um, anyone has put together in, in World Superbike in not just recent history, probably the history of the championship going all the way back to 1988. Um, how he seemed to iron out all of his weaknesses uh, in the space of, of one preseason last year he was fast obviously but he was quite inconsistent just the just the the, the bottle that he showed uh, I was watching races each weekend thinking right surely there's going to be a crack and anytime there was a, a crash or whatever it was it was something that wasn't his fault it was something that was kind of from out of his control whether it was Garloff taking him out Nassin or the the front fender in in Portugal so yeah I would have to say just the 
the sheer level that the top rack showed and you know related to David's point that was you know that was that was the the main factor in, in Johnny not being able to dominate okay so Gordo we can't talk about top rack we can't talk about Johnny we can't talk about Bassani we can't talk about BMW I'm sure there was some other things there as well Gordo what about you what was your biggest surprise of 2021 uh, well, the the main thing is that there were so many surprises. It wasn't one dimensional this year. It wasn't a, a new th- one new thing. Please leave one for me, Gordo. Leave one for me. The one thing that surprised me when I was doing all the end of season roundup, and you don't really do that until you get to the very end and then collate everything. Um, and it was the sheer number of riders that also either won races or got on the podium, given how dominant the three top riders were. So it was a big man-to-man race all year between Top Rack and Jonathan. Reading won a bucket of races, but and they were miles ahead of everybody else in the points. The next riders down are quite far away, but we had all those different podium riders and winners. That was a surprise. I've seen seasons where you get two riders duking it out and you maybe get one or two or three other riders involved. We had, I think you said earlier, 13 different podium people and six different race winners. Even in a season that was dominated by those three guys quite as heavily as it was, that's unusual in my memory of it. It's all my memory, my anecdotal, but that's the feeling I get from this year, that it's the biggest surprise. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with my biggest surprise being the rookies. And Locatelli, I know Neil's obviously mentioned Bassani there as well, but Locatelli's performance to to come away and do what he did. Obviously, he could have won a race this year as well. That was the only thing missing from him through the course of this season. But I think what's going to be really interesting is how he kicks on for next year because I think to be able to stay fourth in the championship next year is going to be really difficult. He could win races and still take a step back in the perception of where he is just with a few other guys doing a, doing a better job or having a more complete season. But I think Locatelli really surprised me because we didn't actually know what his level was, even though we had dominated Supersport the year before, because we've seen it, like Gordo said earlier on, some riders that have come in and been great on Supersport and then weren't quite able to get it done on a Superbike. So that, for me, was the biggest surprise. But, uh, Neil... We started with David last time. We'll start with you this time. What was your what was your best race of the year? What was the one battle, say, that really stood out to you? God, I mean, like, how long do you have, Stevie? Uh, I'll try my best to not just list every round that we went to because it seemed as though we were getting a race of the season uh, each each weekend. But, oh, I mean, probably the, can I just say the Portuguese or the, the, the round of Portimao? I mean, all three races there were just immense we were that was the same weekend as uh, austin and the way that the time difference was we would come into the media center at whatever time it was 8 a.m uh, austin time and catch the world superbike races and everyone was just gathered around laptops just like this is this is something else you know and it was i think a weekend where i was expecting johnny to maybe rack up three victories because he's so strong there but you know he had those crashes and just how top rack was really laying into him it was um yeah i think particular pick from those ones the sprint race i think was the wet one either race one or race two from from portimao i would say yeah yeah i mean they were sort of great races and again it's also it's quite interesting that um in superbikes you can get really good races at portimao whereas the the mostly in gps they've been pretty uh, not so exciting they've been sort of you know someone gets away and that's it uh for me like neil said 
I literally last night I went through lots and lots of highlights and it was like, oh, look, there's, uh, it's Ray Redding and Toprak all trying to kill each other. It was great. Um, and then, but I, but I think the race was race one at Mandela, Mandelica because it was for the championship and it had everything. It had that tension that it needed. It had um, the, it mattered you know what I mean? And you could tell it mattered for every single one of them. It wasn't sort of, uh, it was close at moments, then it spread out and then it got, and then it got close again. It was, uh, the, the the outcome was uh, was completely open right, right to the end. And I think that was, I mean, it was, uh, it, it wasn't like the two contenders going toe-to-toe sort of uh, like Imola 2002, but it was, it had all of the ingredients of a of a titanic battle between the two of them. Uh, I'm very. I would like to say Indonesia, but I think, and bizarrely, maybe just because I was able to really watch the race more than I would do normally, was Argentina either either of the the Argentinian races because it was fantastic on TV. And because I've been to all these races, and I'm usually you're usually talking to somebody while the race is going on, finding something out, whatever. Um, you don't really get to watch them, whereas at home, for the first time in too long, um, I was actually able to watch the races, to purely just watch them um, as an entertainment as much as taking notes and, and everything else. And, you know, Bassani just clanging into everything, just not caring who he was racing against. I think those races were actually the most interesting ones for me to watch. But, I mean, seriously, take a dart, throw it into the results page. <laughs> anyway, I mean, really... Uh, interesting point by Gordo about um, uh, being at home and watching the races and suddenly realizing how much you see of it. That was the, the funny thing because I've just had the opposite experience to Gordo, like actually going back to a race for the first time in a couple of years. Um, and at Valencia, I suddenly realized, God, you see so little of the track, of, of the actual on track action when you're at a racetrack because you're doing all these other things. You're talking to people, you're off sort of in the paddock or whatever. You know, you, you, there's all this other stuff going on. Uh, so you can't sit down and study it. And when you're at home, you actually, because you can't sort of, you know, you, you haven't got uh, uh, other people to, to ask questions of or whatever. You just sit in front of your screen and you, and you sort of watch the whole thing. Yeah, I was going to say, Ducati breakfast, Dave. That doesn't really impact that much on your track viewing. Uh, but it is at the time I get in for for Ducati breakfast, but unfortunately there was no Ducati breakfast this year. Um, uh, so I'm I'm really hoping that that makes a return next year. Obviously enough, uh, I'm I'm going to pick a, a different race than each year. I'm going to pick Top Rack against Reading and Most just because of that last lap. And uh, Top Rack tried to make a move halfway through the lap, fluffed his lines, and uh, you kind of thought, well, that's that's going to be too much gap to make up now for top rack and he somehow managed to bridge the gap and then into that penultimate corner makes the move on reading and then you had the the celebration from top rack as he crossed the line and then the sheer anger from reading as well and it was that nice contrast between them all the way through the season on track as well so for me that was the best race of the year but uh, dave what are you looking forward to most in uh, 2022 uh, the thing that I'm looking forward to most is how Toprak defends the title. It is totally different coming into a championship as a challenger without a title. It's a different motivation. It's a different mental state. It's a different mental attitude. Uh, Toprak will be running the number more, uh, one plate, which is costing me money. Um, uh, fortunately, it's going to a good cause, but never mind. Um, the... the 
dealing with that pressure, it's a totally different sort of starting point. We saw a little bit with uh, Juan Mir this this year. I mean, Juan really wasn't helped with his machinery. You know, the, the, the Suzuki was outclassed in GPs. Uh, but Toprak is going to, he can't just challenge Jonathan. And Jonathan, I mean, like I said, that last race in uh, at, at Mandalika where Jonathan was making it very, very clear what he intended to do next year. He was kicking off his 2022 season in the very in the last race of 2021. Um, he was making a very, uh, very clear, uh, very clear point there. So how that happens, and then of course there's the distraction of MotoGP as well. Uh, and I've got a question for for you, Stephen Gordo. Um, I think Gordo, you wrote about this recently, about or maybe it was on the last pod about uh, you know why would Top Rack go to MotoGP? Will he actually go to MotoGP? Because he wants to be a superbike champion. He is a superbike champion. He's very good uh, on a superbike. He really enjoys winning. It's a really, it's a perfect atmosphere for him. Uh, does he really want to go to MotoGP? And will he go to MotoGP? I think he'll eventually go to MotoGP. And he could go very soon. And he might even do some wildcards next year. I don't know what Yamaha's plans are. I'm sure they, if I was them, I'd be, if he was having a decent season, I'd stick him in a couple of races. Ultimately, people don't understand how different Top Rack is from any racer they've ever spoken to in their whole lives before. Partly, be- and it's all because of his culture and who he who he is mentored by. Kenan Safoglu did his own thing when he got into World Supersport. Didn't quite work out for him in Moto2. Didn't work out for him when he went to Superbike. But he understood where his niche was and where he was going to become a legend in. But he saw that Top Rack was going to be even better than him and was going to be able to go higher than him and needed to ride a super bike, not a super sport bike, for lots of reasons. He doesn't feel the need to go to MotoGP. A conventional European rider will always have that hanging over him. Oh, I never went to MotoGP. I need to go to MotoGP. Some super bike riders have actually destroyed their careers by going to MotoGP and they couldn't come back again the way the riders they were. Um, some riders have went and, and made a decent success of it. Um, he is not thinking about it now because he's happy. And don't forget, he doesn't even like being in Europe that much. All he wants to do is win races, keep his showing off for the pit lane with stoppies and the races, and then go home to Turkey where everything's happy, friendly and everything else. It's a different mindset and mentality that we you know, can't really understand when MotoGP is, is, is the big be-all and end-all. Um, he doesn't necessarily think that way. However, that said, if he wins the championship again this year, why would he stay in Superbike? He's got to at least try MotoGP. So in my opinion, he should go. But if he did take that Yamaha offer at the start of the year, what bike would he be on? So again, you know, Wiley, old Keaton in the background understood all of that probably before it all became very public that maybe that's not going to be one of the best Yamahas to be on. Maybe we wait. Maybe we wait till we get a better Yamaha or a Yamaha more in our terms. If he wins again as the World Superbike Championship, they're going to go to Yamaha or anybody else and say, hey, in fact, you want to take my guy? Do you want to take me at my, my top Superbike rider and 70-odd million people viewing it all to go in MotoGP? Um, it's just a totally different mindset. That's why he hasn't gone this, you know, already. That's I know it's a long answer. I'm sorry, but it is a complicated question. Um, you know, given the people that we're dealing with, nobody's like Top Rack. Even the other Turkish guys aren't like Top Rack. 
he just thinks differently from him. I think for me, Gordo, one of the things you mentioned there was about, you know, who's going to offer him something. Everyone's going to offer him something because Toprak's got no truck with Yamaha, really. He's been there for a couple of seasons. He left Kawasaki pretty easily as well whenever he felt a little bit slighted. Obviously, everything that happened with the Petronas stuff, he he basically came out and said, I'm not going on a second-rate bike. If Yamaha want to put me in MotoGP, they put me on a factory-spec bike because I'm that good. And fair play to Toprak, he backed all that up. You know, he, he hadn't won a world championship whenever he turned down the Petronas bike. You know, Johnny was still the title favourite whenever he turned down the Petronas bike, but he backed himself. And I think what's going to be interesting is, where does he go next? Does it does he go to MotoGP with Yamaha? Or do KTM front up a ton of cash to try and turn around their project? Do Ducati, Honda, whoever you want to look at, will they do it? Obviously, Toprak is his own man. Keenan very much runs a different type of different type of ship compared to most other managers. And I think what's probably the biggest example of that was even when Toprak signed for Yamaha and World Superbikes, he kept Red Bull as, as a sponsor. By all accounts, he was told, factory Yamaha riders are monster riders. You're going to have to ditch Red Bull. And he sort of said, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. Don't worry about that, Yamaha. And then he turns up at the first test with a Red Bull helmet and just thinks, you know what? If I'm fast enough, no one's going to give a shit about what's on my head. And guess what? Top Rack is fast enough and no one cares. Because even at the height of all the talk about you know replacement rides in MotoGP, this, that and the other, Top Rack was still actually the first port of call, even though it was with monster back teams and this, that and the other. Because Yamaha want to see what he can do on a MotoGP bike. He's their top rider coming through. Regardless of, you know... Gerloff did a good job leading up to his Aston MotoGP seat, got his chance on that, and uh, you know didn't 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 embarrass himself at the Dutch TT. Toprak is very different. Toprak won't turn up into MotoGP just thinking I'll make up the numbers, I'll find my feet, I'll make my progress. He's going to look at it that I need to be on the best bike I can be on. I need to have the best people around me. I need to be able to win because you know, like Gordo said, he's wired differently in a lot of ways to riders but he's wired like all the ultimate top top animals in that he needs to win and uh, i think that's what's going to be interesting to see where he thinks he's going to get the best chance to win what are you looking forward to most steve i'll ask you the question what are you looking forward to most next year i'll, I'll be honest i'm just looking forward to more of the same there's no reason to think it's going to be any different next year we're going to have Johnny on the Kawasaki, like you said, Gordo, probably very much a similar bike to what it is right now. You're going to have Top Rack on the same bike. Bautista on the Ducati is going to be really interesting. How's he going to be on uh, on that bike? Because the one thing about it is, like Scott Redding's a, a real world-class rider, but the whole way through their Grand Prix careers, Alvaro Bautista was a better world-class rider than Scott Redding. And also, whenever he jumped onto that Ducati, he did things that we've never seen from anyone in uh, you know the last 10 years in more or less BK dominating races I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone in a dry race at Phillip Island win by 10 seconds you know it was it was Rossi on the, the Repsol Honda kind of thing that was the only thing that you could compare Bautista and Phillip Island to and we're going to go back there next year for the last race of the year so you know I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next year BMW need to make some steps forward they need to find you know they need to find more performance from that bike 
Honda with two rookies coming in. I'm excited to see Le- what Lekawona can do because he's coming in really confident. Vieira has got, you know, he's got he's got an awful lot to prove next year. So we'll see what he can do. Um, keen to see what happens with all the number twos as well because can Locatelli make the step forward to become a race winner? What's Lowe's going to be like if he's fully fit? Because we saw in the second half this year he was fast every time he got on the bike, just couldn't couldn't maintain the endurance for it. What happens with Rinaldi as well? Beside Bautista, you know, will the 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 two small riders help him a little bit? You know, I, I think there's just there's, there's so much to look forward to next year. Yeah, I agree. I think the big thing for me is the two Honda guys. There's so much to look forward to next year. The only thing I'm really, really curious about are how the two new Honda guys are going to go because that is a big hand being played. That is that is a big change of direction um, and they might knock it out of the park. I don't know. Everybody seems to think, really? But who knows what's going to happen? If you've got two young hungry guys that are on factory bikes and Honda get do the right sums in the winter... That's the that is the effort in the championship with the greatest delta between where they want to be and where they are, but that's also arguably the most resourced team in the whole paddock behind the scenes, and they have to do something this year or they're going to leave. Surely they're going to leave. Um, so this is a big play. So I I think you could go one or other way, spectacularly. So if they get a bike underneath themselves that they're happy with, I think sky's the limit. Why not? Because the potential of that Honda and HRC in general is vast. It's going to be really interesting, Gordo, to see it as well because Honda's been the ultimate boom or bust project right from the start. Because if you think back to when uh, you know the project was first announced, it was with all these Grand Prix engineers and mechanics, people that had no superbike experience, they were very much paddling their own their own boat. And it hasn't worked out. And now we get to see whether or not, you know, bringing in two Grand Prix riders is going to make a difference to it compared to, you know, Leon Haslam, probably, you know, the most experienced guy in the paddock. He's ridden every different type of bike. And, uh, you know, he struggled with it as well. So that's going to be that's going to be interesting to see. What about for you, Neil? I think it has to be uh, Scott Redding going to BMW. I mean, I kind of thought, I mentioned earlier that BMW might have raised their level a little bit this year with Van der Mark coming on board. Um, they were still having some issues, um, you know, mechanical issues through Grand World Superbike race weekends. Um, and, you know, results probably weren't what they expected, what Van der Mark expected, even though he finished, you know, uh, reasonably well in the championship, uh, sixth place. Um, but yeah, Redding, uh, multiple race winner going there. Surely it's going to be a match for for Mikey. Um, I think that's that has the the hallmarks of being quite exciting, and and whether BMW can can up the their game um, to the extent that they need to to be regular podium finishers. Uh, but you know, that, even the idea of of Scott being in a BMW uniform and attempting BMW speak is just delicious. I mean, they had they had out of control Tom Sykes that is just like you know one man cat herding for the PR officer. Watching them try and control Scott is great. If they get any sense, they won't bother. They'll just let him be Scott, and they'll bring a whole new audience of BMW people, you know, to the to a, what a very staid Bavarian, you know, up up market brand, you know, to have wild Scott in there saying what he thinks all the time. I think it's genius. I hope they let him be himself, and you know, so yeah, how, 
how that's going to plan out, I don't know, but Scott's certainly got the talent to win races as much as Vandermark, and maybe I'll push Vandermark on a bit. Maybe they will cancel each other out. But I think if they get all the other stuff behind the scenes right, there's no reason why they can't be competitive straight away next year. I just don't see any reason why not. Dave, just out of curiosity, Gordo's mentioned there about Scott Redding bringing you know a new audience to BMW and uh, people to, to buy new BMWs. Is that uh, anything you want to add to that? Just out of curiosity about you know, people going out to, to purchase new BMW motorcycles? Well, let's just say I was the the, the decision by BMW to uh, uh, to sign Scott Redding did not influence my uh, my purchasing decision either one way or another. Shall we? You're a Loris Baz fan, David. You're excited to see Baz back next year in World SBK. I like that. Um, obviously enough, if anyone actually did manage to to listen past uh, David talking about his hat earlier on in the show, um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, chatting superbikes with with uh, David and Neil joining myself and Gordo on uh, this week's show just for a change and uh, I know that you two have watched action all the way through the year because I keep getting texts from you whenever I'm on air asking questions so uh, um, it's been a lot of fun to have you on the pod as well this week it's been a lot of fun for us on the pod all the way through the year because the superbike shows have gotten an awful lot more popular through the season just because of the racing we've had so I want to say a big thank you to our sponsors as well to um Renthal Street and also to Fly Racing and everyone else that's been involved in the show over the course of the year and then obviously as well on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast we've had a lot of support on patreon all the way through this season that's made a massive difference to us on the show and a big thank you to everyone for that this will be the last superbike show of the year but uh, Dave there's no holidays yet for the paddock pass podcast team we're going to be back back recording over the course of the next week for uh, quite a lot of MotoGP shows yeah, exactly. I'm looking forward to that. But I mean, I just want to thank both you and Gordo because I've really, really enjoyed listening to the uh, to the Superbike shows. And honestly, um, the, the Superbike shows have been better than the GP shows, um, mostly because I've not been on them. Uh, but the, the, I mean, really, it's been absolutely fascinating. The, the the content has been really, really good. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And I've re- I always feel smarter after listening to them, which I think is a sign of a good of a good show. Yes, any time that I have a question, why did he have a crap race? Or, well, it was strange that he was suddenly up fighting for the podium. I tune in uh, on the Tuesday after the, the race weekend and, well, my questions are answered. So, yes, thank you, guys. No problem. I'm sure that there was quite a few answers that uh, never got uh, given to some of our listeners as well. So make sure to drop us a message at Paddock Pass Pod and uh, you know, we'll try and uh, try and get answering those questions as much as we can. Obviously enough, this show's ended up running to nearly two hours long. So there were quite a few questions that we didn't get to from today's show, but we might try and get them answered over the course of the winter as well. Gordo, you're about to go out, cut your logs, get yourself into hibernation for the winter. But, uh, you know, Superbikes will be back on track, actually, uh, next week down in Hareth as well. That's when Scott Redding's going to get his first chance out there on the factory BMW and uh, quite a few other bits and pieces being done as well. Kawasaki testing. And uh, it's actually a, a Honda MotoGP test as well, Dave. So maybe that's where we'll see if uh, Stefan Bradle's busy trying to find some uh, cures for the front end problems. But uh, Gordo, keep yourself warm. Obviously, uh, Storm Barra's hit Ireland pretty hard and uh, probably on its way over towards Scotland as well. So probably best just to get that wood burner on and uh, get yourself settled in for uh, settled in for the day. Thank you, mate. I'm sure you've taken the teeth out of the gale for me. That's always appreciated. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, appreciate it for you guys over there. 
Now I had fun. It's been it's been great to talk about this year, especially. I always enjoy it anyway. But this year, all our shows have been longer than the the normal ones because there's just been so much to talk about, and there's always been someone they had to leave behind. But that is a pleasure. You know, that's been the biggest pleasure of the year is is not just someone that I've are working and stuff, but it's the interest other people have shown in it, um, and how much better it's been just to watch. Um, you know, I just hope we get more people able to be going to the races next year, irrespective of whatever class it is, whatever you are in the world, because you can't beat being trackside. It's as simple as that. Yeah, 100%. And uh, thanks again, Gordo, for joining us all the way through this season. And uh, like I said, thanks again to everyone for listening to the show throughout the course of the season. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Just like a boy band. Which, which member are you, Gordo? Dopey, sleepy. <laughs> All of them. The cantankerous one. Cantankerous face. No, yeah, that, cantankerous that, that's face. Dave. That's, that's got to be Dave. That's got to be Dave. <laughs> I was going to say, if we're going to do grumpy, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> argumentative. Who said I'm argumentative? <laughs> I'm fucking easy going, I am. <laughs>